Welcome to the Live Big Podcast featuring Dr. Derek Greer, where we teach principles from God's Word that will empower you to live big. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com. Here's Dr. Greer. Man, I'm going to pray and we're going to get started. Father, we thank you for your Word. Father, I'm going to take your people line by line to prepare for this broadcast this evening to explain and to really dig into this empty tomb we've been talking about. Father, guide me, expedite me, cause everything that needs to be said to be said. And I give you all the honor and glory in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. We all say, Amen. Amen. Open your Bible to Matthew 27, Matthew 27, verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea, You know, some people, I don't know where they get the idea from exactly, but they have the idea that the early church was only comprised of uneducated and poor people. But when you examine the scriptures more closely, you'll discover that the early church comprised both the weak and the powerful, the rich and the poor. Just a little bit of everybody was involved in what was called the ecclesia or church. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple. Mark's gospel tells us that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, In fact, the, the use of his specific name here lends tremendous credibility to the accuracy of the story that we are reading, because if it wasn't true, He was honor-bound to stand up and say, these gospel writers got it wrong, and and I could tell you that's not what happened. But they used his name because he and his entire family would vouch for the events in the first century that were listed. This man went to Pilate. This was a very, very bold move. And he asked for the body of Jesus. As with uh, Queen Esther... God doesn't just give us influence so we can brag about it and, you know, just kind of bask in it. He gives it to us so we can leverage it for his people. So this man was in high position, but he was willing to use that position for the body of Jesus Christ. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Now, powerful people, we we know how this works. They tend to respond to other powerful people. And if God gives you standing in your community, on your job, or or whatever sphere it is, it's a trust you should not take lightly, and you should be prepared to leverage it for the kingdom when the Lord asks. In verse 9, and we're going to pause there, and we're going to talk about some things. When Joseph had taken the body. Now, it took about 1,800 years for the critics to come up with this idea and concept. But in 1780... Something called the swoon theory was popularized. And the theory goes something like, 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 like this. They say that Jesus was drugged. They, they say Luke did it, by the way. He was a doctor while he was on the cross. And that first sip of wine that he took, they say, was the, the, the drug. And it induced something of a semi-coma. And uh, so he went into this coma. And uh, he didn't really die, though. He just kind of went into a coma. And then when he was placed in the tomb, the coldness of the tomb revived him. And suddenly Jesus was alive. You see, if you don't want to believe the truth, you'll believe just about anything. 
And then the disciples came to visit the tomb. They continued. And they heard him groaning on the other side. So they, with Jesus' help, rescued him. The problem is, those trying to to avoid the problem of the resurrection actually require a miracle almost as great in order for this theory to be true. But sometimes people grasp at straws in order to get away from the truth that we are going to dig into today. In a couple moments, I want to explain to you and graphically portray to you that the cross is not just a piece of jewelry we wear. It's not just an emblem to put on a wall. It's not just a sign that religious people chose to use. The cross represents one of the most powerful events in human history. And as I talk about what happened to Jesus, we're going to show some pictures. And as graphic again as they are, as violent as they are, they still do not come close to fully conveying all that happened to Jesus while he was on that cross. Even before the cross, he sweat droplets of blood. He was under such pressure, the layers of his skin separated and he began to bleed. So imagine the puffiness of his face. Imagine you've gone through some tough nights. Imagine what he looked like even before they dragged him into court. But Scripture says that on that night, it was a mock trial, kind of kangaroo justice here. Jesus went through six different trials. He stood before the high priest, the high priest's son, as well as Pilate, and he went back and forth between them all. And during the trial, he was beaten repeatedly. Uh, the, the Old Testament said they pulled out his beard. The New Testament tells us that as they punched him, and these are soldiers, these are strong men, they said, you know, you're a prophet, prophesy which one of us hits you. And they pummeled him and, and pummeled him. And then after the trials, Jesus, before the cross, he endured a scourging by a flagrum, a flagrum. And this alone often killed people. And it was due to the internal injury as well as the blood loss and the infection that often followed such a beating. But what they would do is, you've heard me explain this before, they would tie you to a post and there was a cat of nine tails and this is a little hard to say because it's just that gruesome, but the Romans were expert at death and they knew how to make a point when they wanted to make a point. They would tie pieces of glass, pieces of metal, pieces of bone into these nine uh, uh, pieces of leather. And it hurt when the whip hit the flesh. But the most painful part was not when the whip hit you. It's when the lances or, or the whip cords wrapped around you. So they would wrap around, there was nine of them coming out, wrap around you and it would grab your stomach. It would grab pieces of your thighs, your legs, and, and, and he's naked. All different parts of him. And when they pulled it back, the blood would splatter. Parts of body would be strewn. And if that wasn't enough, as they mocked him, a crown of thorns was placed on his head. This was not little rose bushes. These were several inch 
long thorns that were placed on his head and they were mocking him. You're supposed to be a king. You're supposed to be a king. Here's your crown. And as the thorns ripped through his scalp, more blood loss. Then the mockery continues. A purple robe was placed on his body. And as that robe was placed on him, he's bleeding from the head, but the blood begins to coagulate and form scabs. And if you've ever had a cut underneath a shirt or a piece of fabric, as the blood dries, it attaches itself to the fabric. So after that beating, he's open wide. They put this robe on him. They mock him a crown. But then just as the blood begins to dry, they rip the robe from him and he's bleeding again. That would be enough for most. But Jesus still breathed, still stood, didn't call a legion of angels. He laid down and allowed, he created people. But he allowed his very creation. Without putting up a fight, he stretched out his arms, crossed his feet, and he let them hammer him into a tree he let grow. Major arteries busted. Blood is flowing. The worst type of pain imaginable is running through, reverberating through his body. He's probably trembling, resisting, fainting. And then after hours on the cross, tremendous, tremendous blood loss already. Those that experienced crucifixion also had their bones dislocated particularly their shoulders and their legs. Why? And actually the Old Testament said all of his bones were out of joint. Because when you're on the cross, in order to breathe, you got to remember you're suspended. And the weight is on your hands and feet. And your lungs are, 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 are collapsing and you're, you're, you're out of blood and it's hard to breathe and, and you're, you're, you're hurting. So in order to breathe, you had to push up on your feet and pull up on your arms. And what would happen is as you pull up over and over again, every breath, every word Jesus spoke from that cross cost him something. Because he had to push up to get the air to say it. So before long, he's contorted. His bones are out of place. The Bible says the sin of the world was placed on him. God had turned his back. And, and, and the wrath of God rested on him in our stead. And the Bible said the sun grew dark. It was just too gruesome for humans to look at. And the son said, I can't stand it anymore. It looked away. Finally, it's amazing. The Bible said with a loud voice, he gave up his last breath. After such a beating, who would have a loud voice? But our Jesus is unlike any other you have ever imagined. Not only as God, but as a man. He was more man than most of us could ever imagine. With a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He didn't get killed. He gave up the ghost. He died. It's amazing. This Jesus we worship. Then after he hung his head, he left his body. His spirit is gone. 
His head went down. The soldiers had watched. They knew how much blood had been lost. They pierced him in his side, into his heart. And Jesus died of a broken heart. And both water and blood again flowed. By this point, it's impossible for Jesus to still live. I don't care what type of drug he took. There's not enough blood. Blood had been splattered from the place of the court to the cross. And the Romans who were experts at torture, who specialized in death of this kind, they pronounced him dead. There was no mistake. Jesus was dead. Then after all that, the Bible records that the women took him with Joseph of Arimathea's help and they placed 75 pounds of embalmment on his body. And they did this by hand. And you would think that if for 45 minutes to an hour and a half, I don't know exactly how long it was, if these women were touching him, they would have felt a heartbeat. That, that they would have seen his chest move. But Jesus is absolutely dead. Let's pick it up at verse 60. And they laid this dead body in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. So now Jesus is in this cold, this dark and damp, airless tomb for days without medical attention. It says, and he, he rolled the large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Now such a stone typically weighed from one to two tons. That's 4,000 pounds of weight. Even in good health, Jesus could not have moved that stone. And Mary Magdalene was there. And the other Mary, meaning there were eyewitnesses, women who had touched him, they had watched him on the cross. They, they saw the beatings. They had touched him after death. And they were just sitting there opposite the tomb. You know, they, 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 they were shell-shocked. They, 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 they were overwhelmed by the events of the day, and they just stared. And in their minds, there was absolutely no question that the Jesus they had walked with and loved was dead. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. These men obviously had a very uneasy conscience plus a sneaking suspicion that maybe that Jesus could do what he said he would do so to cover all their bases and to make absolutely sure they do verse 63 they say Pilate we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said after three days I'll what arise you see Jesus' death and resurrection was not an afterthought. It wasn't something that the disciples concocted after he died to explain away what happened. Jesus had prophesied over and over again that he had come to the earth to, to live and to die, and on the third day he'd get back up again. And he said it so enough that even his enemies had a record of these statements. Said so Pilate, therefore, command, use your Roman authority that the tomb be made secure until 
the third day. Now notice here, these are the same men that watched the sky turn black while Jesus was on the cross. They were spooked, but they were in too far. They were in too deep to turn back now. So what they tried to do is kind of play off that nagging fear by blaming the disciples. And this is still what we do. We say, Jesus, the reason I don't believe in you is because of your people. Yeah, one day there was this lady that called herself a Christian that lived on my block. You know, I have some family members that call themselves Christians or, or, or you know, I read something about a pastor on the internet or, or, or in an article. And because of your people, that's the reason I don't believe. But pay attention here. In spite of all they saw, they blame the disciples. And my prayer is after I'm through here today, after all you see, you will not stand before God saying, well, I met some hypocrites. I saw some people in church. Listen, you, you, all of us are going to stand before a holy God. And when you go, you're not going to be able to bring anybody with you. We will all stand before either the judgment seat of Christ or the white throne of God and give an account for how we handled this message of Jesus' love. He said, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has not risen from the dead. Here's the problem. Will we let ourselves develop such deep biases? Not even a person raised from the dead can convince us otherwise. These men were privy to the strongest case. It was actually airtight, and we'll explain this in a moment. But still, they wanted to hold on to their power. Still, they wanted to cling to their position. And, you know, let, let, me, let me read, and, and, and we'll, we'll discuss this. They said, so the last deception will be worse than the what? First, these men understood that what happened to Jesus at death would be even greater than everything he did in life. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go your way, make it secure as you know how. Here's the problem. How many of you know that humans can't guard against God? All these men did was make the miracle even more credible. So they went and made the tomb secure, meaning the soldiers established the perimeter. It says, then they sealed the stone. It was a little bit like police tape uh, in our country, but it, it, was, a, it, was, it, was, a, it was a lot more thorough. It was more like police tape on, on steroids, if you will. They wrapped the front of the, the, the tomb in rope. And the ropes, the end of each rope was emplaced in, in, in wax or clay. And it probably had the Roman insignia in that wax of clay. And, and, and what, what it meant was, if, if, if that wax was broken, it meant that someone had tampered with what was behind the stone. So now you have the power of the Roman government verifying with wax, rope, and the rest, not only a big old stone, not only the eyewitness, but the Roman government verifying that that tomb is guarded and the contents of that tomb have not been touched by human hands. And setting the guard, again, you may be able to guard against people, but you can't guard against the supernatural power of God. Matthew 28 and 1. 
Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. They were there when they buried him. But now they want to finish. They just want to show their respects. And behold, on their way, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. And what did he do? Sat on it. This, this guy was kind of cool. You know, he, he, he didn't have to do that, but he just kind of did it. You know, when we look at this, we really don't know if the angel, you know, caused the earthquake that moved the stone or if the ground shook because of the angel and then the angel moved the stone. But the reality is it really didn't matter. No one could stop this angel. This angel was unstoppable. Let me tell you something. The angels assigned in your life cannot be stopped by human hands. I don't care how many governments, I don't care how many guards, I don't care the machinations of the human mind that array against the plan of God. God cannot be stopped. His countenance was like lightning. That's the way Jesus' face looked on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we get to glory, we're going to look the same way. It's going to be marvelous. And his clothing as white as the snow, he was fierce to look at. And the guards shook for fear of him. Please pay attention. These are war-hardened soldiers. These are killers by trade. And they are shaking like leaves. God is not something or someone to play with. The, 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 the soldiers, again, soldiers, not teenage, you know, little girls at a, a Justin Bieber concert. I'm talking about soldiers <laughs> became like dead men. You know, God is compassionate. God is sympathetic. He's caring. But church, he's nobody to toy with. Each soldier passed out under the strain. But the angel answered, not the soldiers. Those of you that are trying to protect God from where he's going and stop God from where he's going, you're going to deal with the side of God you don't really like. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was what? Crucified. You see, when you're really seeking Jesus, God will speak to you. Now, if you're coming here with a mentality, I'm not going to let it go too deep. I, you know, I don't care about this word. He can start to talk all he wants. I'm just trying to get in here and get my Sunday answer, and I'm out of here. Now, now, you. You have been listening to the Live Big Podcast with Dr. Derek Greer. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com or follow Dr. Greer on social media.